All right. Well, thank you, Matt. Um, you guys can open up to Philippians chapter one if you're not there. We're going to finish out chapter one today of Philippians. And so if you're joining us online here, Philippians one, Matt actually was teaching last week and he gave us a really great illustration that I just kind of want to revisit because we're going to build upon it uh, as we finish out the chapter. And if you remember the illustration from last week was this idea that living in the flesh is like trying to run on a treadmill full speed. And Matt shared the story of his personal experience working out, uh, trying to keep up, and your flesh will fail you. And we all had a good laugh at the thought of Pastor Matt skipping off the treadmill, bouncing into the ellipticals, trying to play it off, although he may be seriously injured, and like jumping back on the treadmill. Uh, good times. But I think that it kind of resonated with a number of people because it's like, man, I've been doing life like that, or it, it doesn't take me long to remember back what life in the flesh looks like. This constant feeling of failure, it's exhausting, there's no peace, and it's only when we step off the treadmill. And, and again, the, the point was, put your trust in Jesus. Your flesh will fail you, but trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's where you're going to find peace, hope, affirmation, and so today's text is going to build on that. What does life look like off the treadmill, so to speak? We know where that's found. It's found in Jesus, but what does that bring about? And so that's what we're going to unpack today. And Paul's going to give us four kind of attributes that we see uh, of a life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so what does that specifically look like? And what are the implications for others and for ourselves when we live life in that way? So we're starting in verse 27. And it says this in Philippians 1, 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you uh, and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. First thing we're going to do is if you're looking in your Bibles, which I would encourage you, even if you're looking on the app, you should probably have like a little footnote thing in verse 27. And if you follow that down, you look in the Greek, the, the only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. In the Greek, that phrase there is behave as citizens. It's this idea of citizenship. And that's the theme really for the book of Philippians. And he's reminding this group in Philippi, this Roman colony, he's like, don't identify as as Philippians, but first and foremost, you're identified as citizens of heaven. And so we, just in the same way that if you're a citizen of a country, you ought to follow the rules and statutes of that country. He's saying as citizens of heaven, there's implications for that. And he's saying as citizens, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, affirming what it is that you preach and believe. And so if you work for, for Pepsi, and you're like, Pepsi products are great. It's the best soft drink. And you only drink Coke. That would seem to be contradictory. It's something like, but why not? Coke is better. Okay, but you understand the point. Or if you're working in the, the healthcare industry uh, in, in leaders right now, the, the, the push is for vaccinations. And so as we've seen throughout social media, all that, there's a level of consistency. We're, they're saying it's important and therefore they're some of the first to get it. And so it, it's living in such a way that affirms what it is that you've proclaimed and believe. And he's saying as citizens of heaven, you ought to conduct yourself in such a way that it affirms your citizenship. Now notice what he's not saying. 
What he's not saying is that somehow your actions make you a citizen. No, he's not saying that. Your actions don't make you a citizen. Rather, they affirm your citizenship. We've talked about this, and I'll bring it up again, but just want to be explicitly clear. Ephesians 2, uh, it'll be on the screen, 2, 8 through 10. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. This isn't your own doing. It's the gift of, of God through Jesus Christ, not by works. And so our works don't make us citizens. Our works do not save us. It's only through Jesus. But he goes on to say, but because you're saved, we're going to get to work. There's works that God's given us to do. You have to understand because whole denominations have missed this. And they get the works on the wrong side of the equation. They say, well, you got to believe and you got to do certain things. And that means you're saved. No, <laughs> was saying it's through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we're saved. But genuine faith is never alone. And so there ought to be works. There are actions, I'd say like this, if you're, you're taking notes, our actions don't make us citizens. They just affirm our citizenship. So they don't make us citizens, but they affirm what it is that we say we believe. And Paul goes on to say this in the text. He's saying, whether I come to see you or am absent, I want to hear that you're doing these things. In other words, his presence or him inspecting us shouldn't determine like our actions and what we say or, or do. And I think it's worth noting because sometimes as individuals, sometimes the presence of others can have us changing our behavior. I don't know if you've done this, but uh, the presence of like people coming over to your house or your apartment somehow magically changes the cleanliness of your apartment, <laughs> right? You know, some of you are like, yes, that was for me growing up. That's when our house got cleaned is when we had guests. No guests, no clean. Guests, main clean. Because we, we, we modify our behavior based on the presence of others. Or Lord forbid that you've been given to like watching TV, movies, just lounging around, not getting up. And the, the hearing Perhaps your roommate or spouse come home that maybe it's the garage door open or, or maybe it's the text like, hey, I'm almost there. And all of a sudden you like clean yourself up quick, shut that down, open a book. Just me. Okay. <laughs> like that's that garage door, man. It makes that sound. It's like time to get with, right? There's just something like the presence of others can modify our behavior at times. Paul's saying you should live like a citizen, whether I'm there or not. This should be true of you. So when it comes in the church context, again, accountability, all that is very helpful in helping us live it out. But it shouldn't be the determiner whether we obey or not. To have somebody say, well, I wanted to be pure, but, but since you didn't ask me specifically and you didn't hold me accountable, then I, didn't, I wasn't walking in purity. Paul's saying, that's not an excuse. I, granted, I get it that it might help, but, or somebody's saying, well, I know what the Bible says about community, giving, uh, uh, all that, and, but I just, I don't give because nobody's asked me, or I'm not in a group because nobody's asked me. Again, what we're seeing here is Paul's saying is that his presence or the presence of others shouldn't determine your actions. Citizenship is, it determines your actions. And again, those things help. I'm not saying accountability isn't helpful. But it shouldn't be the determiner whether you do what God has called you to do or not. And just if you're making disciples, just an encouraging kind of note, when you go to hold somebody accountable, it's a good biblical thing to do. 
don't hold them accountable to you. It's like, hey, we had a talk and we said that we were going to do these things. No, good accountability stands next to people and helps them be accountable to God in his word. Not to you, but, but it helps them like, hey, this is what God says. You know that. You had to take it up with him. And so in our efforts to, to make disciples, let's push people back to the Lord. As citizens living a life worthy, there's a personal responsibility we ought to have for our actions. And again, our actions don't make us citizens, but they affirm our citizenship. And he goes on to unpack this in kind of four affirming ways in which we affirm the gospel in verses 27 and 28. He says this in your text. He says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. If you're kind of underlined, you can underline. He, he says, standing firm, striving, not frightened. Not, so we're fearless. And all this is kind of wrapped in this theme of unity. He says, we have one spirit, one mind, side by side, standing, striving fearlessly together. One scholar was kind of like the imagery that this conjures up of like standing, like striving together, perhaps is that of like a stampede of horses kind of coming at you. It's like, don't be frightened, which I love that illustration as a farm guy uh, growing up on a farm. My idea of fun still consists of like farm things. Uh, in fact, last summer when we were doing a family vacation, it involved cows. Uh, there was a big cattle show in Springfield. You're like, you're a weirdo. I know, but I love it. So this is my daughter, Talitha Tally. She's showing a cow. Apparently she She's new at it, uh, one, because she's wearing sandals, and two, she's not holding the cow, which is uh, kind of a, a portion, but cow's having a blast, right? It's getting scratched. Uh, and then Danica, we got a picture of her. Uh, I don't know who's more excited, dad or her, but we like, we're showing cows, like we're city slickers, like we're doing the thing. Uh, and it's just fun, but growing up on a, on a cattle farm, my dad was one of the purebred breeders of this breed, Galvies, and and it was our responsibility when we were moving cows from one pasture to the other. And again, these cows, if you don't know anything about the breed, they're super tame. Originally in Germany, they were used for like milk cows. So they're super chill. But the closest thing I could think of to like a stampede was when we were moving them from one pasture to the other. The level of excitement that these pretty tame cows had, uh, it was like through the roof. And it didn't matter how old you were. I remember just being a little squirt and dad would set me like on this dirt road where these cows were going to run by in this gate hole because too poor to put a gate on it. I don't know. This is like, we'll just stick a kid there. And so as a kid, it was my job to stand in this gate hole and behind me is like this tall, lush, green Iowa cornfield. And before the cows is this barren dirt road. What do you think they want, right? And so they're supposed to be going to this other pasture, but it's my job to like stand in the gate hole and protect it before, so, so these cows don't go in there. <laughs> and so I'm there like standing and they just kind of like take off jogging. And there's always this one angry looking cow in the front, right? And all these other cows jogging behind. Some of you move cows. You're like, I know that cow. We have that cow. Okay, so they're coming, they're all jogging. And here you are like an eight-year-old kid, like standing in this gate hole like this. And your flesh is telling you to do one thing. 
as those cows like turn and kind of come at you, your flesh is screaming, get out the way, let them eat the corn. <laughs> it's not worth dying over, right? You're like, done. But, but no, <laughs> your dad's like in back looking at you. You're like, okay, like I know that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand my ground. In fact, I might even come at them and I'm going to scream a little bit like, not today, Satan. And you're just going to like scare them away. And you can, here's the thing. You can do that with, with cows because they're a prey animal. I don't know, like God originated them like on the Serengeti desert and lions eating them. They're huge, but they're a prey animal. They're skittish. And so if you come at a cow, it doesn't matter if you're eight years old and a, and a fraction of their weight, they turn and go around you. It's amazing. But here's the thing. We can stand and we can strive fearlessly because our opponent is Satan and he's a defeated foe. The enemy has been defeated. Death could not hold Jesus down. And so we stand and strive fearlessly together because the Holy Spirit is our power. And we have a sovereign God who's on the throne. And one day Jesus is coming back. Revelations references this. He ain't coming back on a donkey but rather a white horse with blood-dipped robes, king of kings, lord of lords. And so we can stand and strive, not in our own strength, our own bravado, like, ooh, we got it. No, but because we can, the, the John 15 language is we can remain because we're in him. And so it's not this idea of, again, the other way is to get back on the treadmill, but we can remain because God has gone before us in this way. And so we don't have to live in fear. We can stand. Then he goes on to, I said there's four. And so like there's a standing, like kind of striving, but I want to really hone in on the, the unity portion where he it says it's, it's standing firm, kind of in one spirit with one mind is the language that's, that's had there. Side by side. This idea of, of standing firm in one spirit might mean like, oh, we're kind of, in it together, which goes with the, the one mind. Like we, sh we share one spirit about us, one mentality in regards to this. But it also could be like capital S spirit. Like we're standing in one God of one mind and we're doing that side by side. And the reason we can do that is because we recognize that, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. <laughs> That's the unity we have. How far short? It doesn't matter. All of us all of us require the same payment for our sins. The, the payment for your sin is no different than mine or theirs. All of us require the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness, to have a right standing before God. And so you've heard it said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all in need of the grace of Jesus. And so therefore, God does not require of us to perform for his approval. God doesn't require us to perform for his approval. It's, it's given through Jesus. But the question is, then, then why are we requiring others to perform for our approval? It's inconsistent with the gospel that we proclaimed. We're saying, well, God's not asking you to perform, to, to work in order for his favor, but better believe I am. And so what it is, is those that have been set free from the treadmill, we are just putting new treadmills for people to run on. This kills unity. It, it, it's so hypocritical. It, it's, it's, and, and perhaps you've experienced this from people. 
where they have a level of expectation, whether they've communicated it or not, they're going to hold you to it. And you know how exhausting it can be to try and, and again, the, the thought behind it is, is you need to perform in order for my approval. And there's often little grace. God does not require us to perform for his approval. Then why is it that we would ask others to perform for ours? It's, it's, it's so hypocritical. It's contradictory to the gospel that we proclaim. That isn't love. And so as God has shown his love to us unconditionally, he's saying, so it should be your love towards others is unconditional. That's why this past year within churches around the, 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 certainly the nation, around the world, have such a hard time because unity is the thing being threatened over and over by these things that are going on culturally. And when we elevate these secondary issues or, or, or like politics or masks and vaccines, all these things, and when we put those up there, and we don't just kind of cling to the main thing, which is Jesus, and we make those things top priority, we start to compromise unity, saying the only way that we can be right, the only way we can fellowship together is if you draw the same conclusion on these things. When really it ought to be the blood of Jesus, the, and having a citizen's mentality, citizens of heaven, and recognizing the work that God's done to unite us to him should bring about a level of unity with that citizen's mentality. And, and here's the other thing. Is that mentality, having a citizen mentality, is essential if we're going to be about discipleship. Implicit in discipleship is the fact that we don't have it all figured out. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go, teach them, train them. You're going to, they're going to need to learn to obey. And so implicit in discipleship is people are not going to have it all figured out. They might even fail. Have you read the New Testament? <laughs> like, followed Peter upon the rock which the church was built? There's some less than ideal moments in his life and ministry. Even after Jesus, refusing to eat with Gentiles? I mean, come on. But, so, but I would say that's par for the course when you're making disciples is implicit. They're not going to have it all figured out. And so if we are going to be promoters of unity... A citizen kind of mentality allows us to show grace and not link somebody's worth to their performance. We can say, hey, I'm committed to you. I love you. I'm for you. Yeah, we can discuss these things and we can improve these things, but they have nothing to do with your worth before God and your worth before me. Does that make sense? I was a recipient of kind of this citizen's mentality this week, I don't know if you know this, when we started the church, I was a ripe age of 31 years old. <laughs> That's pretty young. A lot of zeal, not a lot of wisdom. And I was meeting with somebody that was kind of a, a byproduct of, honestly, my failures in leadership. And it was just talking through like, man, I, and I was crying and I was like, I wish... I was just acknowledging the ways in which I'd let this person down. And I'm like, man, please forgive me. And, uh, and it just 
yearning and I'm like, and I'm broken because moving forward, I know that I'm going to fall short and I'm so frustrated by that. And I just want you to have Jesus as your leader. And unfortunately you're stuck with me and just kind of owning that. And I just remember just the response meant so much. They'd look, they're like, some of the fact like God's love for you is not conditional. Mine won't either. We're, we're going to work on these things, but know that how these things get worked out do not determine my commitment and love to you. And perhaps you've had people that have had that citizen's mentality with you, citizens of heaven, where they're saying, hey, listen, it's so freeing. It is so freeing because it's not allowing somebody's poor performance to rob us of our joy. Because our joy isn't found in them, it's found in Jesus. And so we can roll with the punches a little bit because, again, they don't have to be God. God is. I would just say like this in relationships, I think the thing that learning over and over in marriage and Joe and Debbie can't wait to learn more uh, is just this reality that, that when just one of us is being fully like Jesus walking with the spirit, there can be peace because it takes two to tango. It takes two to have a problem. It's hard to fight with Jesus. It's easy to fight with somebody that's not being like Jesus. In this reality, there aren't any just purely innocent victims in the thing, that we all bring sin to the thing. And so understanding that and living in light of that and not having to have that all worked out in order for them to approve of them, to love them, brings about such freedom. And so it's in light of that that we can have unity when we live in light of that. And so that is why we can stay and strive fearlessly together and have unity is because ultimately... God doesn't make us earn his approval. So therefore we shouldn't make others be given as God has given it to us. And so when we live in light of that, it's going to communicate something. He says in verse 28, he says, because of that, you ought not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Your fearlessness is what he's saying. is going to be a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Simply put, there, there's this opponents that exist here. And he's going to go on in chapter 3 to talk about these opponents, opponents are enemies of God. So you have team Jesus, then you have the other team. <laughs> and he's going to say in Philippians 3, we have this on the screen, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And these enemies, what about them? Their end is destruction. That's the same thing he's, he's using here. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. He's using the same word here. It's going to end in destruction for them because the gods they're following is the God of their belly. And they glory, their, their glory is their shame with mindset on earthly things. But as citizens of heaven, again, theme throughout the book, you guys not, not think like this. You're looking to Jesus. Okay. So what, just keeping that up, if you would, uh, Cassie, what he's saying is, is they're putting their hope in their belly, food, in comfort, in their own glory. And so I'm trying to, this is the chain we had in back. Some of you guys might, write, this is chain. Sounds like, I know it doesn't look like it. Trust me, it's chain. It's, it's strong. This could, two toddlers couldn't break this. But, uh, but here's the deal, is what he's saying is, is, they're putting their hope. They're anchoring themselves to the world. So they're chaining themselves up and they're like, man, this is what we got. And so they're putting their hope in the food they consume, the glory that they can like kind of achieve 
uh, here on earth, they're like cling, like the comforts of earthly things. And so they're like not citizens of heaven, but like they're citizens of the earth. And they're thinking, this is going to like anchor me in. This is what my hope is. And, and what he says here in chapter three, and also in our verse today in 128, he's saying in the end, they're clinging to this. They think it brings security, hope, peace. In the end, it's going to ultimately be their destruction. It does not end well for them. And they're looking for these things to fill what only God can fill. But Christians, we are in the world. We're just not of it. We're not attached to it in the same way. And so when those that are living in opposition, those enemies, when they're coming at Paul, when they're coming at the early church and the Roman Colosseums, all those things, when you have communist, atheist, China, and Matt's reading the letter last week about the persecution, what happens is, is they're like, these are our gods. These are the idols that we worship is comfort, security, uh, glory. And so we're going to poke them in the idols. Like they're thinking like, so therefore to really like, to really inflict suffering on them, let's take away their comfort. Like let's take away their glory. Let's malign their name. Let's, and they, they think like, yes, when we cut them all that, that's when they're really going to suffer. See what happened though? It's like, well, those things, I was actually never attached to those. My, all my peace, all that comes from the Lord. And so when you've stripped all that away, I'm just left with my relationship with the Lord. And he says, it's a clear sign to them. Kind of a uh-oh moment. We're like, we thought that would devastate them. And in fact, it's done quite the opposite. It's reminded them of their salvation where their hope is. And we stripped away everything that they might be tempted to put their comfort in. And they're just left with Jesus. And they're excited. I'd say it like this. The most dangerous dandelion in your yard is a dead one. Because it goes to seed and it's just going to spread. And what happened with the early church, they're trying to snuff it out. What's going to happen to the recipients of this letter for the next couple centuries is there's going to be extreme persecution, suffering. They're trying to snuff it out. In reality, this text is being lived out. All they did was take out a giant billboard and give everybody a sign that the gospel that they proclaimed is being lived out. One of the, the early recorders, Tertullian, said it like this. The blood of the martyrs ultimately was the seeds for the church. The church is spread and it's still happening today in, in communist atheist China, trying to snuff it out. You, you hear about the persecution that's happening. There are now more Christians in China than anywhere else in the world. I get it. They're, they're just, they can only think through their mindset. It's like, well, we're doing it. We're taking away everything that's good. It's like, no, you're just reminding us that God alone is where our hope is. And so this pattern repeats itself over and over. And at least what happened in Rome was instead of like persecuting, eventually like, actually, they've got it figured out. This is now our national religion. And I wonder, you don't have to believe in this. I wonder if China isn't on the same path that the more they try and snuff it out and make it hard and bring persecution, the more they are just throwing gas on the fire, the more dandelion seeds that are being spread all over in that place right now. True to our text, 
that it's a sign, and it's a sign to them that they've got it wrong. Moreover, he's saying it does something for you. It evidences that that's where your salvation is found, and it's a reminder. And he's saying all this kind of like this suffering is from God. And he says in verse 29, it's, it's from God. It's been granted to you. It's a gift from God for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This is from the Lord. He's not absent in all of this. And he's saying what it's going to do is God's going to give you the faith in it. He's granted you the faith. He's going to make good on that, that the, the object of your faith being him. You can have hope. And the other thing he's saying is it's not only that he's going to give you faith in these times, but he's going to give you the opportunity to suffer. And that faith-filled suffering is what cast a clear sign to them. But this idea of suffering, certainly he means physical suffering. In the line that follows, verse 30, he's going to say this about the physical suffering, saying, I encourage you to engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Acts 16, he's helping them remember. He's like, you saw that when I was in Philippi, I was stripped, beaten, chained, and imprisoned. And now you still hear of the physical suffering I have, where here I'm in Rome, and I'm still chained up. And so certainly he means that, that Christians are going to suffer physically. But I would say this, that all of us will suffer. In fact, we must suffer. But there's another form of suffering. I want to bring us to Romans 8. It'll be on the screen. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What's he saying there? saying, yeah, we're children of God. We have the Spirit of God and we are heirs if provided we suffer with him, meaning we must suffer. That's for all of us. There's no, like, we all must suffer. So what's that mean? Like, everybody punched their ticket, Middle East this afternoon, like, let's go. Let's, like, go physically suffer or let's sell everything, live in cardboard boxes. Like, we got to suffer in those ways. The suffering that he is bringing up here is in the context of Romans 8. And just before this, he explains what kind of suffering. In Romans 8, 13, it says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What he's saying is we're all going to suffer in the sense that we live in the flesh. We are going to have temptation. We're going to have things that want to, but we, as children, as citizens of heaven, we put to death the flesh. And we don't give into that. We live in accordance to the Spirit. That's the way in which all of us that proclaim the name of Christ will suffer consistently. And this is helpful. I was meeting with a, a guy this week, just walking him through this fairly new believer. He's saying, man, I just have all this temptation, and it's just such a struggle. I even kind of wonder if I know the truth, given how much of a struggle this is. I kind of even question my citizenship in heaven. To which I'm there, I'm like, I've never been more confident of your citizenship in heaven. The fact that you have a struggle suggests the spirit within you 
is in battle with the flesh that you live in. And so the fact that you're having a struggle is great evidence that God is working in your life. I mean, I would say this, before Jesus, I didn't struggle with impurity. I was just impure. It wasn't a struggle, it wasn't hard for me to do. But it's only since coming to know Jesus that now there's a little bit of a battle where I say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. And so all of us must struggle and suffer in this way. And he reminds them, and they, again, just to be explicitly clear, this is not meritorious. This does not earn us favor with God, our wrestle. No, it is merely because of our citizenship. It affirms that we are citizens when we wrestle in this way. I'm going to invite the band up, but just kind of recapping what he's unpacking here is, is Paul's going to Remind them of Jesus, ultimately. That's where he would want them to anchor. Yeah, remember his chains. But more than that, when you remember what Jesus has done, it's because of the price that he paid that we can be citizens in heaven. We don't work to earn that citizenship. But because of our citizenship, we get to work. And then moreover, when we do that, it it's a clear sign to those that they are doomed. But it's a reminder of our salvation. And because of that, that God does not make us earn our standing with him. We shouldn't put barriers for others and make them earn our affirmation and our love. But as God has loved us unconditionally, we should love others. That's what it means to be ambassadors of the gospel, to fight for unity. And so as we take communion today, I would just invite you, you should have a communion cup under your chair or it was on it. But as we take communion today, again, we're remembering Jesus's body broken, his blood that was shed for us. That's the price that was paid to, to reunite us with the Father, to move us from enemies to heirs. And so as you remember Jesus's body broken, his blood shed for us, and as we take communion, would you just delight in the unconditional love that God has for you. And perhaps you believe that lie. I know growing up in a context like that, that was a lie that was told, that you got to do things in order to earn favor with God. Would you just this morning delight that, that God loves you unconditionally? And I got four beautiful daughters and, and, and certainly want to coach them along as parents, but there's nothing they can say or do that would make them love make me love them any less. I love them because they're mine. And if you're in Jesus and you've accepted the forgiveness for your sins through him, then you're a child of God. Doesn't mean we don't get to work, but just know that your works don't change your standing with him. And moreover, as you just delight in that and you take communion, you think about God's unconditional love for you, would you perhaps just reflect if you're putting barriers for others and essentially denouncing the gospel as you're like, oh, thank you for the freedom. I'm not going to let others be free. Would you just own that hypocrisy? Ask the Lord to forgive you? And he already has. Would you just put that to words so and invite God and just let those people that perhaps you've jailed up out of your heart this morning. So just invite you to do that as a man. And then when you're ready, you can stand and worship with us.